Thanks, Craig. Well, good morning. You came back, and I didn't scare you off with all those genealogies. <laughs> Almost scared myself off. <laughs> so we're picking up the story of David. We're picking up the story of David this morning, and I want to just highlight a couple of things from 1 Chronicles chapter 10, just the last two verses. And then we're going to, I'm going to highlight a few things in the life of David, a couple of key chapters we're going to land on, uh, and also picking up the end of his life. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, we, we find this hideous death of Saul. Uh, he's killed by the Philistines, well, he's wounded by the Philistines, and um, which is... Think of this, this is ironic because Israel asked for a king, 1 Samuel chapter 8, Saul's name means ask, you're getting what you asked for. His name means ask, they asked for a king, it's picking up the story of, um, with Hannah when she asked God as well, there's a theme that runs through, they're getting what they asked for and what did they want? They wanted a king like the nations. They were copying the nations around them. Not only were they copying the nations, but they said they wanted a king to fight their battles. But remember that God had already promised Israel that he would give them victory over their enemies. What did they have to do? If you obey me and if you keep my commandments, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the list of blessings under the Mosaic Covenant. One of them was, if you obey my commandments, doesn't matter how many your enemies are, I will give you victory over them. But now they want a king like the nations. They're copying the nations. They're getting their leadership from their leadership style from the nations around them. And of course, it says of Saul, when God's chosen Saul, he's from the line of Benjamin, so we know he's not from the line of Judah because God has already got a plan for kingship. Way back in Genesis 17, God already promised Abraham that kings are going to come forth from you. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, it talks about Judah the scepter will not depart from Judah. So we know that kingship is already in the plan of God. This is not, they're not asking for a king and therefore um, this is something God didn't want. It is because they are rejecting God's kingship because he's the ultimate king and the Davidic king is simply under the reign and rule of God. And that's where we're going to look at the promise God makes to David. He's going to rule over God's kingdom. He's the earthly ruler. But here, they wanted a military king. And so when they look at Saul in the description in 1 Samuel 9, it says he was taller than everybody else. Oh, so he's your military guy. Remember, David, in contrast, doesn't, he can't wear his armor because it's too big for him. So they want a military king. And here, the military king dies in battle against the Philistines. 
And so there's an irony here, but there's also, it underscores at the outset that Israel's solution would not come from a military king. There's something else that is needed, not a military king. We'll look at in a few moments, Psalm 33 says, The king is not saved by the size of his army. A horse is a false hope for victory. Somehow in the leadership of the king and God's people, is it requires something other than military leadership. And that's going to be a theme that runs through Chronicles with the kings that we're going to be looking at with King Hezekiah and King Jehoshaphat and David as well. It's no coincidence when David is anointed that he defeats Goliath with these little stones. It's through the work of the Lord. So, so we have Saul, one chapter devoted to him. And then it says Saul died for his trespass or it could be unfaithfulness. That term ma'al in the Hebrew text, is another key term that's used in Chronicles. It's also used in Ezra. And the idea of ma'al, it appears in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 15, for example. Often the term unfaithfulness can be used to do with idolatry. And it's also used of kind of when you profane something that's sacred. You So this term ma'al is a classic term used in Chronicles to describe Saul and his unfaithfulness. That's how his language is characterized. And it says, which he committed against the Lord because of the word of the Lord. So the centrality of the word of the Lord is going to be important as we run through these chapters. And because he asked Sa'al counsel of a medium, picking up 1 Chronicles 28, making inquiry or seeking darash, Hebrew term. This is another really important term in Chronicles, seeking the Lord. And he is seeking wisdom outside of the Lord. He's going to go to a spirit medium here. And therefore it says... He killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. A couple of other comments here. So here we have Saul being described as ma'al, unfaithful. But I just want you to recognize that the, the t- first time the term ma'al is used is actually at the end of the genealogies in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, and it says, So all Israel was enrolled by genealogies, and behold, they are written in the book of kings of Israel, and Judah was carried away into exile to Babylon for their ma'al. So Saul is being described in terms of the God's judgment, but already in chapter 9, it refers to the whole people for being unfaithful. So that's, that's getting the end, getting where we're headed, because the same language gets picked up in 2 Chronicles 36 as like bookends. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 14 talks about the last king, Zedekiah, how he stiffened his neck, he didn't listen. Verse 14 of 2 Chronicles. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests... 
And the people, all of them, were unfaithful, ma'al, following all the abominations of the nations. See that? So you've got bookends, 1 Chronicles chapter 9, they go into exile for their unfaithfulness, and at the end of it, because they also defiled the house of the Lord, and that's part of what unfaithful means when there is something sacred or set apart for God, and it is being defiled through abominations or idolatry. Also to be noted is Ezra, when it comes to the mixed marriages in chapter 9, uses the term unfaithful again. I'll just give you the references. Ezra 9 verse 2, Ezra 9 verse 4, 10 verse 6. And there are a number of them underscoring why were they being unfaithful. We've got the mixed marriages, but the people that they are marrying are performing abominations like the nations. Chapter 9 mentions that. So, so you see this thing, but who else is said to be unfaithful? Ahaz, 2 Chronicles 28, 19, 29 verse 19. Manasseh. Hello, we're back. I won't turn too much over here. 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 33 verse 19. So, I'm not sure why we're second. So what do we have? We have chapter 10, Saul. We have the whole people going back to chapter 9. And then we have chapter 36. The whole of the people are unfaithful. And then we have little windows in between the narrative of specific people who are described as being unfaithful. And one of them is Manasseh, 2 Chronicles 33.19. 2 Chronicles 33.19, he's our worst king. We're not going to talk too much about Manasseh, but he's our worst king in the southern kingdom. He follows spirit mediums. They weren't even meant to be in the land. He practices abominations like the nations. I often think my husband and I lived in Salem for about 15 years with all the about 3,000 witches in the city, and I always think, like, Manasseh would be very at home in Salem. <laughs> All the stuff that goes on over Halloween and all the tarot cards. And yeah, that's Manasseh's world. And in fact, God brings him to Babylon with a ring in his nose. We've got pictures of it out. Very painful. There's a picture of an ancient Near Eastern, not of him, but of a king that's holding the ring. And there's his servant bowing down and he's kind of pulling it. That's what happens to a king when you don't humble yourself and God humbles you. We're going to talk about that. God humbles you instead of you humbling yourself. But he's our worst king. And what does he do when he goes into Babylon? He prays to God and he humbles himself. And he confesses his sin and God brings him back and restores him. So... We have Saul, unfaithful. We have the whole people, chapters 9 and 36, unfaithful. And several kings along the way. Manasseh is our worst one who is unfaithful. 
And guess what? While he's in Babylon, he prays to God and he humbles himself and he seeks God's face. And God listens to his prayer and brings him back to Babylon because Leviticus 26.40 says, If my people, when they're in the land of their enemies, if they humble themselves and if they confess their ma'al, I will hear and remember. So as we start this story, the solution to the problem of Israel's sin is returning to the Lord, humbling yourself and prayer. So that's going to be a key theme that runs through this book. So it moves then. I want you to notice that God is intervening, that he killed him. God is intervening. This is the hand of God, these events. And he turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. As we start to look at the life of David, I just want us to think through, I mentioned it briefly last night, what happens from the time when he is anointed up to the point in chapter 11 where he becomes king over all Israel. 1 Samuel 16 is a great high point because remember when um, Samuel goes to anoint David, he is, he's not anointed king there yet. He's anointed, this is kind of this calling, divine calling that is upon him. His formal anointing is going to come. But here, remember all the brothers come in and, and of course, God's got to tell Samuel it's not according to the outward appearance, but you've got to look at the heart. And so God has got to give him wisdom to show him who the son is. And David does not even get a showing. And he's brought in and he has the oil anointed on him. Then you have the story of what comes next with Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, it's a great, he's a great hero. He comes back after defeating Goliath in the name of the Lord. Spirit has come upon him also. And then things turn for the worse from chapter 18 onwards because Saul starts to get jealous of him. And you have all these chapters in, that are skipped over in Chronicles from chapter 18 to 31 of Samuel, where you have, you have all of this fleeing for his life before he's finally anointed as king. I think this is a really important narrative because... Chapter 10, this is the hand of God. It's God's timing. Remember that David won't take his hand against. And so what is involved in the time between his actual calling and the time where he's anointed of many years of fleeing for his life? And I touched on this briefly last night. I think what it does is it underscores for us that the call of God involves, and the work of the kingdom involves suffering and persecution. And you see, 
I don't think we have embraced that narrative in the Christian church in North America. And I know we haven't because I do a lot of talking in churches. And I, one of the reasons why when I do my Old Testament, we'll talk about that a little bit later, the whole Casket Empty series, is to help people understand the biblical narrative because what we tend to do with the Old Testament is we have a version of the health and wealth gospel. And we all say we don't like the health and wealth. We all say that, right? We all agree with that. But let me say, I think it is way more in our being than we give credit for it. Um, I don't know if you have read recently. You may not have, but I have read the Joel Osteen I Declare book, 31 Promises. Sorry, I, I know I talked about Andy Stanley last night. Some of you said you were what, thinking of having him come to... <laughs> no, okay, no. <laughs> Look... So that if you've read the Joel Osteen, I declare, I declare, these are declarations that you're meant to say, I guess, over the month. I declare, and one of them is, uh, I declare a spirit of ease over my life. I'd like that. <laughs> um, I declare um, that God will bless me. And when you read the little commentary, what he means is that my salary is going to increase significantly. And he gives you a story, Richard. <laughs> he gives you a story about it. Okay. Now, when I teach in churches, and I read some of those, I have people, I, I mean, you can hear a pin drop in the place. Because they're like, what? That's not right. I mean, I, I honestly, I have it over and over. You can hear a pin drop please, in the place. And what I say is the whole biblical narrative at its very center has a cross that's got to tell us something. Right? And I think one of the things that we see it in this story here is... In the life of David, and this, he's absolutely called of God. And my point to underscore here is that the call of God, all the stuff that happened in between before his anointing, is part of the call of God. It is not something separate. As if he had to, you got to pray all this stuff away to get to the real call of God. Right? I really do. And I find myself at odds with my own narrative, which is a little bit more influenced, even though I would not like it, by the Joel Austin narrative, not the blessing. There's part of me that's kind of like, oh, it, it jars with me. What about the prayer of Jabez Chronicles? Why is that so popular? Again, we mentioned this because bless me and free me from my pain. Why is the Chronicles that prayer in there? Because he prays to God and God answers prayer. That's the point of the prayer of Jabez. That, but it's not, let me be free from pain. If we think of this larger narrative, think of the story of Joseph, whom God used. The prison narratives are part of the narrative and part of the call of God. Jeremiah, he ends up in prison as well. The king Asa puts Hanini, the prophet, in prison 
for speaking the word of God. In Chronicles, we're going to see with Jehoshaphat, Micaiah speaks the word of God and he gets slapped on his face and gets put in prison. King Joash, 2 Chronicles 24, murders Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. My point is, what we have done with the Old Testament is we have selective cafeteria style taking the blessings of God from Deuteronomy, often 28, and any other verse that we can find that has the blessings, and we've missed the whole narrative. And so it is... Read a bit from Mark Laberton's book because he talks a little bit about this. We've missed the narrative, and David is our key king to underscore what God is doing. And in addition, David also is going to write a number of the Psalms. And all the beautiful Psalms that we have for the church and Psalms of lament, where do they come? They come from David during this. God was at work. And so there's a different narrative at work here in the life of David. And I just want to suggest as we start to look at his life, and I think his early beginnings shaped him. I think they shaped how he finished his life. Because we're going to come to it in 1 Chronicles 29. You get to the end of it and he says, we are exiles and strangers on this land. Here's the king of Israel saying this. And he's got so much wealth and he's going to give all of his wealth to invest in his retirement plan, the kingdom of God. Gives it all generously. And I think these early years in his life have shaped him. Solomon's going to be very different because Solomon has it all handed to him on a platter. And if you read the narrative of Solomon, Solomon, it says early on, it talks about all the wealth that he gained, that he asked God for wisdom. He starts well. But then you start seeing in the narrative how many horses he has. Deuteronomy 17 says a king is not to build up resources of silver and gold for himself. A king is not to gather horses for himself. And Solomon does this, and you see what happens at the end of his life. The final chapter of Solomon in Chronicles is about the size of his throne. It's about the gold and the inlay on his throne. It's about the horses he acquired. So what? Because Chronicles doesn't says it, but he ends in idolatry, right? And so I think these early times with David, and uh, I'm going to look at in a moment some of the help that he receives, but the point here is that the narrative is going to underscore, and the next two chapters do as well, they are flashbacks to say that when he is going through all these difficulties, God was there. And God was there helping him. And so there are flashbacks in chapter 11 and chapter 12 that talk about the time when he was fleeing. Chapter 12 is going to talk about when he goes to Ziglag, the Philistines, He's there for like a year and four months. And you've got to be thinking to yourself, 
Was I dreaming? Did that oil really go on my head? Is, is, that, is that why I had the oil put on me? For this? And the answer is yes. For this. So, important as we go through. Let me highlight a few things within this narrative. So, chapter 11. So, it starts off, all Israel gathered to David. We've talked about the language of all Israel at Hebron. He was first made king. Remember, he's first made king uh, over Judah. There's all um, Ishbosheth becomes king for two years. So there's a whole lot of things going on. But now we pick up the narrative as, as it is in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Behold, we are bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led us out and brought Israel. We're going to look at that because there's flashbacks that even when Saul was on the throne, God was already at work building his people, his mighty men. And then verse 3, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord through Samuel. Picking up 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. We have then uh, David defeating the Jebusite city, um, which becomes Jerusalem. This is the final subjugation of the land, a key moment. Verse 9. David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. And then it, there's a flashback that goes back in verse 10 of 1 Chronicles to 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 to 39. It's going back to an earlier time, and it says, Now these are the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who gave him strong support in his kingdom. See how there's a counter-kingdom being established here together with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord. And I just want to highlight a couple of these uh, mighty men. Just, I'm just going to give you a couple of references here. But what scholars have noticed is the mighty men come from various cities and they come from non-Israelites. Here we have the theme again. Uh, different cities. We have Bethlehem, verse 26. We have Gibeah. In verse 31, Carmel, verse 37. We have different tribal backgrounds coming. Verse 31, Benjamin. Verse 42, Reuben. In other words, we are already seeing some of these tribes coming in. And then we had non-Israelites. Verse 39, Zelek, the Ammonite. Verse 41, Uriah, the Hittite. Of course, we know about Uriah already, but... Verse 46, Ithmar the Moabite. So he's building, like we saw the genealogy, he's also building his mighty men, God is at work, and these are those who are supporting him in his kingdom. And in fact, these are the ones who are going to help him establish his kingdom. So quick comment here. No solo leaders. God's building the kingdom, but he's doing it through people who come to support David. That gets picked up again in chapter 12. Turn to chapter 12. This is another flashback going back to 1 Samuel chapter 27. Now these are the ones who came to David at Ziglag. 
Notice it says, while he was still restricted because of Saul. So a couple of comments. 1 Samuel 27. Again, he's in it. He's worried he's going to get killed. Goes to the Philistines. He's given the city of Ziglag. And he has about uh, 600 men there. And he's got two wives there. So he's got the, the whole group of them. And notice it also says, while he was still restricted because of Saul... Saul was restricting David's activities, but God was not. Saul was restricting David's activities, but God was not restricted because of what Saul was doing. God was at work, and he is at work in unlikely circumstances. Here's the narrative now. We think God works in a certain way in our lives. And he doesn't. I have been trying to get my head around this. To look for the ways God is at work in unexpected places. Can God grow his kingdom in Philistine territory? Yes. Can God grow his kingdom when the actual king is oppressive and wants to try and kill you? And the answer is yes. And here's what is also interesting is that while he is restricted, there are all kinds of military men who come to help him. Verse 1. These were among the mighty men who helped him in war. Uh, I want you to notice a couple of the names here. The chief was Ahiezer. Eliezer means God is my help. Ahi, brother. Brother is my help. Eliezer. Ahiezer here. Notice in verse 6. Azarel, Joaza. These, these are all names that come from the verb to help. 12 verse 9. Aza. This, oh, another. Oh, helper. God is my helper. My brother is my helper. Like, okay, what is up with this? In fact, the verb to help turns up seven times. 12 verse 1, 12 verse 17, verse 18 twice, verse 19, verse 21, verse 22, verse 24. Oh, what is going on? God is helping David while he's restricted. And while it looks like nothing is going on, God is helping him. And then we have in... Verse 18, the Spirit of God, chapter 12, verse 18, comes upon Amasai. Comes upon Amasai. Let me just find one verse for you. Verse 17. Abigail bore Amasai, the father of Amsar, the Ishmaelite here. 
the, verse 18, the spirit came upon Amasai, who was the chief of 30. And what does he say to him? We are yours, O David. We are with you, O son of Jesse. Peace to you and peace to him who helps you. Indeed, your God helps you. See that? And so what it is underscoring is that God has his hand on David. And these men are coming to help him in unlikely circumstances. So I want to ask you this morning, some of you may be in those unlikely circumstances. And you think, God, is God, is God doing anything right here? I would encourage you to look around and see the people whom God has brought into your life and into your ministry. Uh, a number of years ago, I had a good friend of mine in North Carolina, and she was struggling with um, just her marriage and just a whole lot of things. And I was, as I was praying one day, I really felt like I should go down and visit her. And uh, a good friend of mine who knew her, I told her, I said, I really feel like I should go down there and just visit her for a weekend. I wouldn't normally do that, but I did. And this good friend of mine said, you know what, I'm coming with you. Let's, let's go down together. We went down to her place and uh, we got to the front door and she started weeping and she said, oh, you, you can't come in, you can't come in. You know, I said, no, no, we're coming, we're friends, we're coming in. You know, and no, 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 you can't, you know, she's North Carolina, so there's the whole politeness and everything. I said, no, no, I'm Australian, we're coming in, just so you know, right? <laughs> and, and the place was disaster. She'd just been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. There was no food in the fridge, it was empty. She'd, husband wasn't living there at the time. He'd moved out. Oh, it was... And, and what always reminded me was, God put it on our hearts to help her. And we said to her, no, this is, this is from the Lord. This is what God wants in your life. And I think David... Some, how many of the Psalms say, oh God, you are my help? Think about it. Psalm 4, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 63, on my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. And so it underscores what God is doing. Uh, one of the things I've been doing um, recently is with our... Um, the Casket Empty Project, which we'll talk about um, later, is um, we, the materials, God's been doing all kinds of things in terms of the materials being work, translated into Arabic. And uh, we recently have a translation of the Old Testament timeline into Farsi um, to go into Iran. Um, and um, they're about to do the New Testament to... Here's what's so interesting. You know, in Iran right now, if you speak to anyone about the gospel, you'd be put in prison. If you go to the Open Doors website, there's a whole list of Iranian pastors who are sitting in prison because they're a pastor. 
these timelines, they're going to print up 2,000 Old Testament and 2,000 New Testament. Bibles are very expensive and very hard to smuggle into Iran. But the people who smuggle them are risking their lives. I mean, they're risking their lives. But that's a counter-narrative. Right? Um, let me read for you for this um, one of the, one of the um, testimony of Mojtaba Hosseini, um, who was arrested and put in prison because of him being a pastor. He was told that if he kept on preaching that he would be put in prison. And he said, I don't know why. We knew this was coming up, but we felt that the Lord wanted to, us to continue. We knew that it would mean that we would be arrested at any time. And he said, the first thing he did when he was put, he was put into prison and with a whole lot of other kind of, um, he talks about um, with other murderers, robbers, drug dealers. And he turned to prayer looking for God's help. He said, that's all I could do. And he said, at first they were prayers of repentance and I thought God was punishing me. And then he said, God started to communicate to me and tell me that he had me there for a reason. And he said, it's funny how God works sometimes. It would have been absolutely impossible for us to pass the big gates of the prison to bring in the gospel. But God placed me inside the prison. And an imam offered, they started bringing in scripture pages into prison. And they had someone who started to translate them. The prison imam offered to help us. He was impressed by our commitment to God. I think it was God who filled his heart with kindness for us. They started translating the, um, the scriptures into Farsi and they would start passing them out to prisoners. It wasn't long before the prisoners all knew these Bible verses were circulating. We even got requests uh, from other wards. And people started giving their lives to Jesus. And he said... I never prayed for God to release me from prison. I can serve God anywhere, inside or outside of prison. It doesn't matter what I'm situated in. I can work in God's kingdom wherever he places me. Right? And so, is that beautiful? I think we need to help our people understand a different narrative. And I think we have to, remember we talked about we've got to be transformed. We've got to be transformed into thinking about how we understand our narrative. Mark Labberton, just a quick comment here. Uh, in his book, uh, Called, talks about relocating. He says, a great theme in the identity of the United States is being shaped against the backdrop of the Exodus narrative. Many in America believe they live in the promised land. We live here, and he's talking about the Christians. We live here in the land of milk and honey, in the land of potential and hope, of fullness and satisfaction. Whether inside or outside the church, the American dream is a common theme in our culture. He talks about it founding in the... And then he says, For the church in North America, such a national narrative can easily mean we are the church of the American dream. And often the American dream shapes our church identity, practice, and vocation more than anything else. 
Our faith is often seen as a means to fulfill this dream. Our consuming habits offer us another step toward the promised land. This is the land of milk and honey. And then he says, Christian consumers in the United States are virtually indistinguishable from the culture at large. And he suggests that we need to be thinking about a new location. And he suggests exile. I'm going to talk about, I'm not sure exile, I think exiles, not exile so much. I'm going to talk about that. But his point is that we've got a theology of the promised land, the great American dream, and that shapes our narrative. But here, what we find out is that God is at work in a place other than the promised land, so to speak, and the chronicler is wanting his people to understand this because they are living under Persian rule. And it is underscoring that God is still at work. And I think in the North American church, when we get tempted to think that there's no hope in light of the culture, we need to be reminded that God is at work. Uh, a book by Scott Sunquist, which I've been reading, The Unexpected Christian Century. He talks about uh, the church in China and under Chairman Mao, the key manifesto, 1949, Christianity under the People's Democratic Dictatorship, the three-self movement. By 1952, most of the missionaries were expelled or in prison. During the Cultural Revolution, church leaders were sent to prison camps, those who refused to sign the Christian Manifesto lost their churches. Pastors arrested. Seminaries, over 200, were closed. Left of their, on their own, they were cut off from foreign money, leadership or training. Chinese Christians found a way to survive and pass on their faith. Bibles were hand-copied. Meetings and baptisms were held during the night. Pastors in prison remained faithful Evidence of suffering from the gospel. And then on page 90, the difficult experience of the Chinese church under Mao's form of communism did more to promote Chinese Christianity than 140 years of Protestant mission. How can God do that? Because he's God and he loves to work in unexpected people and in unexpected places. So that he gets the glory. And when we say that must have been God. And so James 1 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. So, story of David. God is helping him. And he then is going to be anointed as king. All right, I'm going to pick up a couple of things in our next few chapters. So chapter 13, David wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And Saul, there's a negative comment because he didn't seek it. David, this is the presence of God. We have the Ark of the Covenant that's being brought in. But there were a couple of problems the first time around. The ark is being on a new cart. Oh, by the way, the new cart, the only, only other time that term occurs is with the Philistines, when they put the ark on a new cart. Yikes. 
Not only do they put it on a new cart, but there's no evidence that the people who are moving it are Levites. Remember that the book of Exodus, how does it describe the, the Ark of the Covenant? Poles on it. You don't even meant to touch it. It's got to have poles on it and it's meant to be covered with material so you don't even look at it. Right, Indiana Jones, think of that, you know. <laughs> so Uzzah, the oxen, it starts to stumble. Uzzah, Uzzah doesn't grab the oxen to try and puts his hand on the Ark of the Covenant. He gets killed because God is holy and he's enthroned. He's set apart. So David decides to leave it for a few months, reminding us that God wants to be served in the way that he says he wants to be served. Right? He cares about the way things are done. And then in chapter 15, they move it back. A wonderful ceremony in chapter 15. The Levites come. There's rejoicing. Then they move into uh, chapter 16. We're going to have then the worship that is uh, wonderful psalms. But I just want to pick up one thing in chapter 14 before I do in between. Nestled in between the Ark of the Covenant before and after. Verse 8 of chapter 14. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel. All the Philistines went up in search of David, and David heard of it, and he went out against them. So, chapter 13, about to bring up the Ark of the Covenant. Chapter 15, it goes up, bring, is brought to Jerusalem, in between. Think of this. David's been fleeing for his life. I mean, he's had a rough go. Now he becomes king, and now let me just chill for a while. Just need some time off. First thing that happens then when he becomes king, after he's anointed, is the Philistines come against him. It's like... But I also want us to be aware of, as we're thinking of the role as we're thinking of the role of the king in terms of leadership in the kingdom, we've said the early part of his life, difficulties, part of the call of God, but we also need to realize that some of the difficulties are also caused by the nations rising up against the Lord's anointed. Because here, Psalm 2, Psalm 2, you see this with some of the other battles that come up. Psalm 2. Let me just read it. This is what we're familiar with. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth your possession. So we know the ending is sure. But look at how it starts. Again, we don't hear too much about the start of the psalm. Look at the start. Why are the nations in uproar? 
and the peoples devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. See that? So as we, again, I think this has not been part of our narrative for Old Testament narrative. We always feel that we're on the defensive about Israel and their treatment of the nations, right? You always, always feel like you've got to be defensive about, well, what about when they went into the land and they went and killed a whole lot of um, foreigners in the land, right? You, I'm sure you hear it all the time. I, don't, I can't find a problem with that. I want you to understand that the nations, there are many occasions when if they don't fight them, they're coming to get us. That's the way it works. Think about the, um, the Philistines in Judges. They've oppressed Israel for 18 years. What about Samson? I mean, the guy had his eyes gouged out by Philistines. Judges 16, verse 21, and they made sport of him. 1 Samuel 4, verse 2, they killed 4,000 Israelites. The Philistines have just cut off Saul's head. 1 Samuel 31. My point here is we usually think of the nations of Israel killing nations. And I want us to also think that it goes both ways. That the nations are rising up against. There's another story with David when he's going to show kindness to people. And then what do they do? Instead of showing kindness, they, they strip their military men. They shave their private parts and they send them back. Right? So we just need to be aware of this is a two-way relationship. When the Assyrians come and take Lachish... We have huge reliefs of it. These are another, when the Assyrians come, this is Lachish, this is one of Hezekiah's cities. When they take Lachish, there are a whole group of people that are impaled on stakes around the city. Not only do the Assyrians impale them, they take a whole lot of them prisoners, but they also skin them alive. Right? If you go to the British, some of you may have seen in the British Museum, skin them alive. My point here is Israel is a small nation and they are going to be overwhelmed and defeated by the nations unless they fight against them. So that's part of the warfare and God, of course, is going to intervene but I also want to remind us that when we are thinking about our own journey, we've got to discern what God is doing. Because sometimes with King Rehoboam, when the nations come against him, it is God's judgment. It says God raises up Shishak to bring discipline. When Manasseh is brought to Babylon, it's God's discipline. And so sometimes the coming in of a nation can be to do with God's discipline. The Babylonians is, of course, a great example. But there are other times when the coming in of a nation and an attack is due to the faithfulness of the king and King Hezekiah after these great acts of 
faithfulness. And so it requires discernment to be like the men of Issachar in chapter 12 who discerned the times and knew what Israel was to do. So, John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You don't get too many Bible verses on that one. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. What about Paul when he was dragged out of the city? After they, in Acts 14, after they had preached the gospel to the city and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So, global church, in our own people that we're ministering to, I think we have to help them start to see a different narrative. Life of David is a great example of one of the places, but the whole narrative of Israel, understanding theologically that the nations, there's opposition in the kingdom. We have to have discernment to know that. And I think the church in North America needs to be ready for opposition. We don't have a theology for it yet, right? We're like, you know, aren't we in the promised land of milk and honey? Don't we have Deuteronomy 28 and I try and help people? No, it's the wrong covenant. <laughs> it's the wrong covenant. You can't keep that one. That one leads you to curse, not blessing. I mean, we, we, we cafeteria-style Bible verses will not help us in the days to come because the narrative of the Joel Osteen or the Great American Dream narrative is what dominates. We have to reshape, and our own lives, we've got to reshape the narrative. And one of the ways that we can do that is also through the global church. Right? Uh, we have a student um, in, uh, who is from Nigeria, and uh, he... His family was uh, very high from the north. If you know anything about Nigeria, the north is a really tough area right now. And his father was one of the key, and his grandfather, one of the key leaders of um, Islam in the northern Nigeria. This, um, this student was, received his PhD in Islamic studies in the Quran. He started having dreams. Do you hear about the Muslim world? Of course, missionaries are restricted, but God is not. And so it's like Jesus says, oh, you can't go there? I'll go. I'll turn up. And so he started having dreams, and he was told in the dreams, he just heard, read the book of John. He had no idea what it meant. He, after a couple of times of the dreams, we've had he and his wife in our home, a couple of times of the dreams, he went to a bookshop and says, there a book called John. <laughs> He's given the book. Long story, he became, met Jesus. Right? 
became a believer, was ostracised from his family, was put in prison, was tortured. And he, one of the reasons he was, he was studying at Gordon-Conwell, right? You'll see nothing online about him because he's keeping like... He was studying at Gordon-Conwell and part of it was to get out. But here's the amazing thing. Uh, last year, you know what he said he was going to do? Go back. He and, he, and he wasn't worried for himself, but his wife. He and his wife, they have gone back. Um, they're actually coming out this weekend to a retreat where in my home church, my husband's going to. Uh, they're coming back. He's coming back for the weekend. And you know what? I felt like we were in our home, and I'm involved with this Call of Love Ministries that has to do with Arabic. And I thought, oh, this would be great to connect them. I'm thinking, maybe you should go and connect with them, and maybe this is a way that you could minister. Does it sound like some of the disciples with Jesus? Oh, no, no, don't go, don't go to the cross. <laughs> Maybe there's another. I felt like that's what I was. And I'm like, he understood the narrative of taking up your cross more than I did. So I think we need to help our, the people in our church, we, ourselves. We've got to start to think of a different narrative. And I think the biblical story helps us to start to reshape our categories and I don't think the two-minute Bible study or five-minute quiet time is going to do it. And I think we've got to do what the Chronicle is doing. Go back and tell the story and give it a long story. <laughs> give it so that it penetrates. A couple of Bible verses are not going to penetrate that and shift the narrative from the great American dream to the biblical narrative. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you for what you're doing in the life of David. And Lord, that you were his help. And you are indeed a mighty fortress. And Father, we thank you for what you're doing in the global church. And Lord, what you were teaching us in terms of how we to understand our own context. And Lord, I pray that you would reshape our worldview that you would reshape and align ourselves with the biblical narrative. And Father, we confess that we have often expected the promised land narrative. And Lord, we thank you that you are at work in places where there are people have been restricted. Lord, you are not restricted. And Lord, I think of each person here in the ministry in which they're serving in some of those places of opposition, and some of those places of difficulties and trials, Lord, may they know, even this week, that you are helping them and that you are with them. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.